1: cyberbit is offering cyberwire listeners a free live fire exercise sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire nato condemns russia for the chemical attack in england The U.S. sanctions Russia for NotPetya and election meddling and warns of Russian preparations for an attack against U.S. infrastructure. Chinese cyber operations support that country's claims to the South China Sea. Iran shows increased cyber espionage activity. Observers fear a return of the Triton Trisis ICS malware. Another unsecured AWS bucket may have been found. And my conversation with Rico Chandra from Arctis Radiation Detectors, On protecting our nation from nuclear attacks. I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Friday, March 16th, 2018. NATO has placed itself firmly behind the UK in its nerve agent dispute with Russia, which ought to give nuclear armed Russia some Article 5 pause. TASS is authorized to state that sources have told it that NATO won't invoke its Article 5 Collective Defense Clause, presumably because the chemical attack in Salisbury was too small and too ambiguous. The official Russian line has been that the attack wasn't its doing in any case, and besides, traitors deserve to get what's coming to them anyway. The U.S. administration also issued sanctions yesterday in reprisal for both NotPetya and the 2016 election meddling. Sanctions or not, Russia is unlikely to knuckle under quietly, and U.S. authorities expect attacks in cyberspace. Yesterday, the FBI and Department of Homeland Security contributed analysis that resulted in U.S. CERT issuing a joint technical alert warning of Russian government intrusion into U.S. government and energy sector networks. The prospecting of the energy sector is particularly disturbing, as it includes apparent preparations for industrial control system attacks. The alert warns, quote, DHS and FBI characterized this activity as a multi-stage intrusion campaign by Russian government cyber actors who targeted small commercial facilities networks where they staged malware, conducted spear phishing, and gained remote access into energy sector networks. After obtaining access, the Russian government cyber actors conducted network reconnaissance, moved laterally, and collected information pertaining to industrial control systems, end quote. It goes back at least to 2016, U.S. CERT says, and it's an ongoing campaign. So what would happen in the event of a full-blown cyber conflict between the U.S. and Russia? If you ask FireEye CEO Kevin Mandia, he would tell you Russia would win. That's what he said yesterday in an interview on CNBC's Closing Bell. He said, quote, The reality is if all of Russia's cyber weapons went against us and all of our cyber weapons went against Russia, they would win. End quote. Part of his reason for saying this is heavy American dependence on the Internet. The U.S. has a big attack surface. Mandia's company is calling out the Chinese threat as well this week. U.S. engineering, defense, and maritime companies tied to U.S. operations in the disputed waters of the South China Sea are being hit by Chinese hackers. FireEye thinks the attackers are controlled and directed by the Chinese government. The Financial Times has a long piece on the way in which a number of other nation-states are looking to Russian cyber operations as a model to be emulated. Citing research by security firms FireEye, CrowdStrike, Glasswall Solutions and Kroll, the report indicates that countries like North Korea, India and Pakistan are noting the success Russia's had and are considering following the same path. In North Korea's case, of course, that country is well down that path. Iran shows continued activity in spearfishing targets in Asia and the Middle East. The threat group Temp.Zagros, more often known as Muddy Water, no connection to the similarly named hedge investment firm, has stepped up its distribution of malicious Word documents. Palo Alto Networks, FireEye, and Trend Micro are all tracking the group. Observers are warning the industrial control system malware Triton or Trisis may be ready for a comeback. It was used last August against petrochemical targets in Saudi Arabia. The campaign, which was extensively analyzed by ICS security firm Dragos and others, was disturbing in the way it went after safety systems. People fear that were it to be used again in an improved form, it might succeed in having deadly effect. Saudi Arabia is currently in a heightened state of tension with regional and religious rival Iran. Saudi's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman this week compared Iran's Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, to Adolf Hitler, and he meant that as the strongest possible condemnation. He also said that Saudi Arabia would swiftly acquire its own nuclear weapons, should Iran do so. CTS Labs, who discovered vulnerabilities in AMD chipsets that may or may not be serious, has issued a clarification to answer growing objections to their hair-trigger disclosure. That's the disclosure that got to AMD the day before it went out to the general public. CTS defends its different flavor of responsible disclosure as better for everyone. Disclose the vulnerability to vendors and everyone else at the same time, but also impede criminal reverse engineering by redacting technical details. The downside to this, of course, is that it also impedes legitimate researchers from assessing whether the vulnerability disclosed is real, let alone serious. CTS admits it erred in not lining up some independent verification in advance, but hopes to do better in the future. The other issue involves the appearance that the disclosure was connected with short-selling AMD stock. In its white paper describing its findings, CTS offered a disclaimer many observers have read with raised eyebrows. They said they may have, quote, either directly or indirectly an economic interest in the performance of the securities, end quote, mentioned in the report. That is, in AMD. Coincidentally or not, a short-selling investment firm, Viceroy Research Group, essentially simultaneously released an analysis of AMD's value explicitly based on CTS Labs' report. It reckoned the value of AMD at zero and predicted the company's quick shipwreck in Chapter 11, this suggests that Linus Torvalds may have been onto something when he dismissed CTS Labs' report as short selling, not research. The incident recalls to several observers the 2016 incident in which security researchers at MedSec coordinated disclosure of vulnerabilities in St. Jude medical devices with Muddy Waters short sellers. Gamers, take note. Hackers are getting into Fortnite registered accounts and using them to make fraudulent purchases. Fortnite, which now rivals Minecraft in popularity for online gamers, of course offers in-game purchases. Credential-stuffing attackers are gaining access to gamers' registered accounts and making fraudulent purchases. Chromtech, one of the security companies that looks for unsecured Amazon S3 buckets, says it's found another one. 1.3 million customers of Walmart partner Limoje's Jewelry, May have had their personal information exposed in an openly accessible database. Finally, to return to the concerns about Russian cyber attacks, it's not just NATO that's on the key vive against Russian cyber operations. Relatively neutral Sweden is devoting serious thought and resources to defending itself against Russian ambitions, both kinetic and cyber. They are, after all, just a short hop across the Baltic. And as ABBA has known since 1982, something's going on. I know something going on. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's from the Sands Technology Institute. He's also host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, welcome back. Um, We wanted to talk today about uh, credential stuffing, particularly how to uh, prevent it. What do you have to share with us?
2: Yeah, credential stuffing really sort of has become a big uh, topic in the uh, last year or so. The problem that really sort of emerged is that uh, so many credentials were stolen. It's pretty easy for a hacker to find a username-password combination that a user used across different uh, sites. And then uh, these credentials are used uh, sort of in these automated scripts, just like sort of the good old uh, password brute forcing, hmm. even if it's not a credential, uh, it's often just the uh, things that are you're using for password resets and even to set up an account. So a lot of organizations, for example, have problems if users already have an account set up with you, now they're trying to establish online access. What questions are you going to ask them to sort of authenticate them? And uh, that sort of where credential stuffing comes into play quite often.
1: So uh, take us through that. I mean, what, what questions should they be asking?
2: Well, um, now, first of all, they should be asking questions that are typically not known to other sites. So something that's very specific to your site. In addition to this, there is really no good way around some kind of offline confirmation So if let's say someone has an account uh, with your company and is all for a sudden setting up online access, it's not really too much to ask to then send them a good old postal mail uh, with like an activation code that they can then use to activate that online account. Given all the information that's out there right now, there is no real good way to prevent this. Now, as far as just the passwords go, Troy Hunt, uh, he sort of collected a lot of passwords that were leaked over the last few years and he made that list public. So, what you probably should do is download that list and uh, he sort of published it as SHA-1 and try to check if users are using these passwords that are using also your site. Now, If you did the right thing and you hashed your passwords with something other than SHA-1, then this may not be so straightforward. But the next time the user logs in or the user changes or sets up a new password, then you can check, is that password on that list of leaked passwords and warn the user and suggest that the user uses a different password.
1: All right. As always, good advice. Johannes Ulrich. Thanks for joining us. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Rico Chandra. He's the CEO of Arctis Radiation Detectors, a company that specializes in nuclear detection. He joins us to describe the types of nuclear threats the world faces and the intersection of cybersecurity, the industrial IoT, and physical security.
0: To make you clear, like the, the U.S. is certainly one of the best protected countries in the world and most of the Western world is fairly well protected against radiological and nuclear threats. A large effort was put in shortly after 9-11 to equip our borders so you know the land borders canada and mexico and the seaports where the container ships uh, arrive all of those ports of entries are equipped with uh, so-called radiation portal monitors that detect if there is a, a radiological threat in any of the cargo coming in and most most of the cargo that that arrives in the u.s actually does pass through one of those radiation portal monitors that said you know, there's no such thing as 100% security. And our adversaries are getting better connected, having, you know, access to all sorts of new technologies and means. And so we need to improve our security uh, to keep our borders safe. And so, in the process of doing
1: that, to connecting those systems together, you have to be careful about uh, some of the cybersecurity vulnerabilities that uh, may be the result of that
0: exactly and and that's really where i believe the world has evolved since 911 if there were ever to be another attack on the scale of 911 be it against you know the us or a european country it's not inconceivable that it would be a, a physical attack combined with a, a cyber attack whereas 10 20 years ago that was not really a concern that you'd have this pairing of, of, of a cyber attack together with, say, a radiological attack or or with conventional explosives attack or, or you know, the, the, the sort of acts of terrorism that, that we hear about in the news and are concerned about.
1: So can you take us through what are some of the challenges and, and some of the techniques that you all use to protect these systems, which I, I suppose you could you could say these are mission critical devices? Uh,
0: these are mission critical critical devices, and um, one of the things that's been changing over the, the last couple of years is the customers, in our case, the customers are typically governments. It's not like they didn't want to have cybersecurity on their devices in the past. And cybersecurity has always been, you know, something that, that's been considered, but the difference is today procurements are set up that way that, you know, the, the systems are from the base up their design needs to incorporate cybersecurity measures, whereas um, in the past that was more of an afterthought, oh yeah, and um, then uh, try to cyber harden what you have, whereas now it's part of the original specifications, it's part of the original design, and it's designed to be cyber secure. I guess one of the things that
1: I'm not clear about is what are the odds of, of these sorts of things actually making it through? And does it matter? Is it one of those things where you, you know, it's it's such a big threat if something did come through that even though it's unlikely, you still need to protect against it?
0: Essentially, there's three categories of threats. The first is materials that could be used to manufacture a nuclear weapon or a nuclear weapon itself. So we're talking the so-called special nuclear materials, highly enriched uranium, plutonium stuff that... Where you can build a nuclear bomb or an actual nuclear bomb. So that's the first threat. The second threat is strong radioactive sources that could be uh, used to construct what's called a radiological dispersal device, or you know, a, a dirty bomb, for example. And that's very different from a nuclear weapon. It doesn't cause a huge bang. It you know, it uh, typically it's you know used with conventional explosives and. It doesn't lead to many more casualties than a conventional explosive, but it does contaminate the area where it's detonated, and, and that causes a lot of disruption to uh, society and, and, and the economy because you need to evacuate, and there's distrust of the public and authorities and all that. So that's a second category of threats, very different. And then a third thing that is increasingly becoming relevant is There is just a whole bunch of consumer goods and industry goods that are contaminated for uh, one reason or another by radioactive materials, and we just don't want them in our supply chains. We don't want steel coming in that's that's radioactive. We don't want want food coming in that's radioactive. So that's more of a, a public safety than a security concern. So you ask how relevant are these threats and uh, how likely are they to get through? So the first one, the one of, of nuclear weapons, if you look at geopolitics today, it's very it's very relevant. We're discussing, you know, some, some of our adversaries have uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, but um, – What's the point of having missile defense if you can just, in principle, put a nuclear weapon into a freight container and ship it directly to the address where you want to? So that's highly relevant on the uh, radiological dirty bomb scenario we as a society and especially the, the agencies concerned with protecting against these threats have quite a, a reason to be proud of the fact that no attacks have taken place using dirty bombs because many terrorist organizations would have the capability and the intention to carry out such attacks and they, the fact that they haven't is a very good sign and then the, the, you know, the public safety aspect, we're just, you know, when we buy braces for your daughter, we automatically assume that the steel that goes in there is not radioactive and we want it to stay that way. In general, we're getting better and better at detecting stuff. It's not always possible to detect everything. You know, you can certain configurations of nuclear materials, if shielded the right way, become very difficult to detect. But the fact that that we're constantly increasing the detection performance of the hardware and the software to detect these threats. That has quite a bit of deterrence value because if, you know, say you're a nefarious actor and you want to smuggle something into the United States – Now you need to organize yourself. You need to figure out which border crossings you have the best chances of getting into. You need to research how do you shield whatever material you have to prevent detection or to try to minimize the risk of detection. This creates a lot of chatter. You know, these organizations need to to coordinate and need to inform themselves. Nuclear detection isn't isolated. It's like in in a whole context of security. So if you have these many layers of security, not just at the U.S. border, but also internationally, you're really increasing the likelihood that our intelligence services will pick up on these groups as they try to organize themselves and as they try to inform themselves about how to best slip through. So more of a holistic approach where different measures uh, fit together to provide protection.
1: That's Rico Chandra from Arctis Radiation Detectors. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at theCyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed.